Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Monday, November 6th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor, along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer, and our Executive Director Ali Abunima. It's been 31 days of Israel's relentless genocidal attacks on Palestinians. Uh, we have a lot of news and analysis for you coming up, so please stay tuned. Uh, but first, we're going to go to Ali uh, for his opening remarks. Ali, you're muted. Sorry. Hi, everyone. I apologize for that. Let's try again. I want to start by reading from the opening paragraphs of a Washington Post article published on Sunday, headlined, White House Frustrated by Israel's Onslaught but Sees Few Options. As Israel's ground invasion of Gaza escalates, the Biden administration finds itself in a precarious position. Administration officials say Israel's counterattack against Hamas has been too severe, too costly in civilian casualties, and lacking a coherent endgame. But they are unable to exert significant influence on America's closest ally in the Middle East to change its course. They continue. U.S. efforts to get Israel to scale back its counterattack have failed or fallen short. The Biden administration urged Israel against the ground invasion, privately asked it to consider proportionality in its attacks, advocated a higher priority on avoiding civilian deaths, and called for a humanitarian pause, only for Israeli officials to dismiss or reject all of those suggestions. The Post goes on to say, that has left the Biden administration urgently seeking to temper anger in the Arab world by making clear publicly and privately that the United States is deeply distressed by the suffering in Gaza, a densely populated land of more than 2 million people, about half of whom are children. What's the point of all this? Clearly, the intended effect of this government messaging is to promote the lie that the United States is not responsible for Israel's horrific actions and should not be blamed, blamed and indeed is even trying to restrain it. The hapless Biden administration, we're expected to believe, is powerless over Israel, a country which is completely dependent on the United States for political and military support. They're watching a train wreck and they can't do anything about it and the trains are speeding up. The Post quotes an unnamed person supposedly familiar with administration thinking, saying, now, far down in the same Washington Post article, in fact, in the 22nd paragraph, we get this. And I quote, Washington is Israel's largest military backer, and the White House has asked Congress for an additional $14 billion in aid for Israel. But administration officials and advisors say the levers the United States theoretically has over Israel, such as conditioning military aid on making the military campaign more targeted, are non-starters, partly because they would be so politically unpopular in any administration, and partly because, aides say, Biden himself has a personal attachment to Israel. So in other words, the United States could demand a ceasefire, could vote for one at the UN, could stop the flow of bombs, but instead, Washington has decided to do none of that. And Joe Biden personally doesn't want to do it 
because he loves Israel and apparently loves it when Israel murders Palestinian children. And listen again to that claim buried in that paragraph that stopping military aid would be, quote, politically unpopular. Would it? Certainly not with the American people. As I've mentioned before, a Data for Progress poll published on October 20th found that 66% of Americans support a ceasefire, including 80% of supporters of Biden's Democratic Party and 56% of Republicans. I haven't found a more recent poll, but I can't imagine that the scenes of utter horror coming out of Gaza can have done anything except increase support for an immediate end to this barbarism. But even if the Washington Post won't say it, we know with whom it would be unpopular, the weapons industry and the Israel lobby, the entities that pay the politicians. Let's call them what they are, the genocide lobby. Ultimately, however, the responsibility lies with those who have the power to turn off the supply of weapons with the stroke of a pen. And that is first and foremost, Joe Biden. This is his genocide, his Holocaust, and will be his only memorable legacy. But he's not alone. Last week, the National Lawyers Guild, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestine Legal sent letters to members of Congress putting them on notice that they too may be personally liable by voting for more military aid for Israel. Should you vote in favor of that package, you risk facing criminal and civil liability for aiding and abetting genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity under international law, and may face investigation and prosecution at the International Criminal Court and in third states under the principle of universal jurisdiction, their letter states. I hope they will follow up with legal action. Now, do you remember back in February 2022, after the large-scale entry of Russian forces into Ukraine, where a war against Russian-speaking people had been raging in the east of that country ever since the US-backed coup of 2014 brought far-right extremists to power in Kiev? The United States and the so-called West immediately imposed unprecedented sanctions they gleefully announced would reduce the Russian economy to rubble. They even decided to stop listening to Russian music and reading Russian novels. Practically every European university cut off ties with Russian academies and Russian athletes were banned from competing. We were told all this was due to the unprecedented Nazi-like barbarism of the Russians who had come to Ukraine to commit genocide. Let's take a look at this blast from the past. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking about Ukraine almost one year ago. Meeting at a critical juncture. Um, as Ukraine continues to seize momentum on the battlefield, President Putin has focused his ire and his fire on Ukraine's civilian population. Over the past several weeks, Russia has bombed out more than a third of Ukraine's energy system, plunging millions into cold, into darkness, as frigid temperatures set in. Heat, water, electricity, for children, for the elderly, for the sick. These are President Putin's new targets. He's hitting them hard. 
This brutalization of Ukraine's people is barbaric. Well, you heard that right. Heat, water, electricity for children, for the elderly, for the sick. This brutalization of Ukraine's public is barbaric. Those are the words of Antony Blinken. According to the United Nations Human Rights Office, the number of civilian casualties in Ukraine from February 22 until the end of September this year was 9,701 killed and more than 17,000 injured. That includes fatalities in the Russian-speaking eastern areas. It also includes 555 children. So according to the UN, children made up 5.7% of the fatalities in Ukraine. Bear in mind that this is a, over an 18-month period and in a vast country with a population in 2021 of 43 million people. In tiny Gaza, in just 30 days, Israeli-American bombing has now killed more than 10,000 people, including more than 4,100 children. That may, means children make up 40% of the Palestinians Israel and the Joe Biden administration are slaughtering. So the civilian death toll in Gaza in 30 days has already surpassed Ukraine's in 18 months. These numbers cannot capture the scale and horror of the suffering, but by themselves they provide a clear indication that what is happening in Gaza is a systematic campaign to deliberately murder civilians, whether purely for sadistic revenge or with the purpose of exterminating and ethnically cleansing them. There is no limit at all to Israel's desire to murder Palestinians. Over the weekend, Amichai Eliyahu, Israel's minister of so-called culture, suggested that dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza was an option to finish everyone off there in one blow. Keep in mind that Israel has by now already dropped the equivalent of several atomic bombs on Gaza of the type the United States used against Japan. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu supposedly suspended Eliyahu and made a statement that the minister's remarks were, quote, disconnected from reality. Netanyahu added that Israel and its military, quote, act according to the highest standards of international law in order to prevent harm to non-combatants, and we will continue to do so until victory. Listening to that statement from Netanyahu, I ask you, if Netanyahu is any more connected to reality than the rest of the murderous fanatics in his government. On Sunday, the heads of 18 major UN agencies called for an immediate halt to the slaughter. For almost a month, the world has been watching the unfolding situation in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory in shock and horror at the spiraling numbers of lives lost and torn apart, they said. We need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. It's been 30 days. Enough is enough. This must stop now. By any account, Israel is committing the worst possible crimes, and it shocks the conscience that up until now, only a tiny handful of countries have even withdrawn their ambassadors from Tel Aviv, let alone imposed significant sanctions or arms embargoes. It is true that the primary responsibility for the genocide lies in Washington, as well as in the capitals of its vassal states, including London, Paris, Brussels, Rome, and Berlin. 
But that does not absolve other countries, particularly China and Russia, permanent members of the Security Council from taking action. The Genocide Convention places an obligation on all countries to act to prevent and stop genocide, but so far they have done little or nothing. Over the weekend, Blinken traveled to the region and met with the foreign ministers of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. They demanded a ceasefire, and they disagreed with Blinken publicly. But they know well that asking politely won't change Washington's mind. Yes, I understand that these are client regimes of the United States, but sometimes even the puppet must surely get tired of having the puppet master's hand so far up there behind. There's simply no excuse for Egypt's refusal to exercise sovereignty over its own border crossing with Gaza and let the wounded out and aid in unimpeded by the United States and Israel. Although, as I've said before, aid is largely a distraction from Israel's purposeful siege. And Jordan's airdropping of a few crates of medical supplies over its field hospital in Gaza last night was little more than a publicity stunt fully coordinated with Israel. So it is left once again to the people of the world to try to stop horrors over which they have little control. It was heartening to see the huge protests around the world once again this weekend, especially in Washington. This picture, sent to us by our friend Jennifer Bing, was one of many that struck me. It's a list of all those Israel had killed up to that day, Saturday. It's a list that is already much longer. The Palestinian people in Gaza now have only themselves, their resistance, and us. They are counting on us to continue to raise our voices as loud and as often as we can, without slowing or tiring, to demand an end to this genocide. Thank you, as always, Ali Abunima, our executive director. Uh, and I am joined uh, once again by Asa Wynn Stanley and John Elmer. Um, and we are going to bring in um, one of our contributors uh, who's been working for us for the last couple of years uh, from Gaza. He is now in Ireland, um, but his family is still in the Gaza Strip. Uh, we're going to bring in Ahmed Asamak. Uh, Ahmed, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Can you give us a sense of what you've been hearing? I mean, it must be excruciating for you not to be able to know exactly how your family is doing um, every second of the day, but um, can you give us a sense of what they've been through the last month and what their current situation is right now? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today and for giving me this opportunity to talk about my family and all my friends and all Gazans in this uh, very difficult time. Uh, it's it's unspeakable, actually, and unbearable. Uh, I lived 27 years in Gaza and I survived and lived all the Israeli wars and escalations in Gaza, and as a journalist, uh, I covered uh, the maybe the all escalations and wars that Israeli launched on Gaza has launched on Gaza since 2017. Uh, 
Um, this war is completely different than the previous wars. Although the previous wars were, yeah, full-scale, brutal, uh, sometimes, yeah, they, they were like, it's it's difficult to un- to describe the horror of, of the previous wars, but this time it's it's completely different. It's completely different when it comes to the casualties, when it comes to the destruction when it comes to the ways that Israel has has been using to to banish all Palestinians in Gaza. From the first day when I heard uh, about uh, the the war eruption, I I talked immediately uh, to to my family to to check. Uh, They evacuated our house from the first day and they have been since then. They have been uh, displaced since then. Uh, you know, Israel has cut water, electricity, fuel, and all things uh, on Gaza since the first day. And since then, they have been suffering from access. They can't access to water, to electricity, to fuel, to anything. And what has wor- worsened the situation is the cutting of uh, internet and uh, network on Gaza many times, and even now, they they claim they have claimed they return it, but no, actually no. I couldn't, for example. I still like I've been trying to con- uh, to contact my family for three days, and I can't because I can't call them. I can't. They they don't have any uh, any access to the internet, and how they can? How how can they? Uh, get access to the internet without electricity. My family, uh, like actually this, but this time, this is the first time for me to be far away from from my family. We are a close knit family, and uh, my friends, like we are, uh, m- my siblings are friends to me. It's not just siblings. Uh, unfortunately, my mind has been preoccupied by the worst scenarios due to. Uh, to, to the horrible stories I've heard and how I see my my, my friends abroad suffer from 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 it. For example, one of my friends, he's my friend and colleague uh, Ahmed Nao. He lives in the, in, in in London. Uh, all his family were killed uh, last week uh, without any justifiable reasons. Just the three sisters. Uh, his three sisters survived because they weren't in in the house. Uh, my two friends here in Dublin, they are Gazan. Uh, their houses were flatted, and one of them, uh, my friend, she's she's Wala Al Absi from Jabalia. Her family, uh, her family evacuated to Sheikh Radwan in in Gaza City, and uh, last week at down. They were sleeping, and suddenly Israel targeted, without any warning, two adjoining houses. Uh, her her family uh, were like if, if fled quickly immediately, and while on the while on their way, a shrapnel uh, hit uh, his her brother's wrist, cutting all nervous, and uh, he was uh, severely injured. He went to a Shifa hospital. 
to you know for treatment as in, as any injured as as any injured person but he he needed at that time he needed a surgery an urgent surgery but he unfortunately there wasn't any turn because the waiting list of surgeries were was full and just what the doctors did was just put a bandage on the on the uh, on the injury and told him like to come back after after a week to to do the surgery they went they evacuated to in in uh, in Nusayrat camp in the middle of Gaza on, of, in the middle of of the strip uh, he went to al auda hospital in in Nusayrat. he he um, his family uh, knew a doctor there and that doctor managed to find uh, a turn for him and his surgery was a three hour. After the three hour, the surgery wasn't successful. He had to underwent, he had to undergo two surgeries in the same on the same day. And now his surgery is, is not that successful. And now he's wanna uh, travel to Egypt to complete his treatment, but he can't due to the uh, closure of, of uh, crossing borders. This is just a small example that like occupies our our minds as Gazans abroad. Uh, my three days ago, I managed to talk to my family, and it's uh, it's it's heartbreaking. Like to see how my how my brothers uh, suffer to just to contact us because my sister lives in Saudi Arabia and I'm in Dublin now and. Uh, we can't contact them by phone, so the only the only way is to contact them through the internet. My brother uh, goes tens of meters away from the. They are live. They are living now in my relative's house. Uh, they go hundred tens of meters away from the house uh, to a neighbor who has uh, solar panels and has internet there. He stands on the door of, of, of the house to just to connect the internet, to send us, we are safe, we are alive. And then he goes back, he, he returns home. And he does that like many times a day sometimes, and many, sometimes like once a day, twice a day, as, 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 as many as he can. Uh, I talk uh, I, like two weeks ago, I told them, like I asked them how they can act, how, how can they access water, food, how they manage their daily lives. They told me they have a water well near them, and this is what we used to do during the previous wars. We used to take empty gallon water gallon to go to the water well and fill them. I used to go with my brothers and my cousins because we used to, to be in the same building. Uh, most of us uh, all yeah, like used to evacuate and now all my cousins and uncles are evacuated also or are displaced. We used to go to, to that well to fill these water gallons with water and then go back, return home, empty these, uh, these gallons with both uh, water buckets and 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 to put them to use them for for toilets for uh, washing for a lot of this stuff and then go back and we used to go through this process many times a day or sometimes if there is no water uh, 
we used to go like uh, every two days, every three days. It depends. Uh, but they are lucky because they have a source of water now, and it's it's it doesn't matter how suffer they how how much they suffer to get to to get access to water the point for me and the important for me is they can access water they don't have electricity they go to to the same neighbor who has solar panels and my brother take all takes all the phones and small batteries for lighting they lighting leds small small lights they he takes batteries and phones to to uh, to that neighbor and he charges all that all all these uh, stuff and after that he returns it again i asked him how how can you get a bread he told me we uh, i wake up at 5 or 6 a.m to go to to find the tear in the line on the bread on the bakery and he tell me he he always tells me ahmed I, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of people on the line just to get a small pack of bread. This small pack of bread, generally, like it's enough just for three or four people, just one for one day. There are more than 40 members in the building. And he, he tells me, Ahmed, we, we go there with my uh, another brother and other cousins. They go there and they pretend they are not the brothers, because bakeries uh, give like uh, just a pack of bread for a family. And my brothers don't stand in a row or next, uh, next or uh, together. You know what I mean? So one of them like stands in the first of the line and the other in the half of the line or in the half of the line, just to pretend they are not brothers to get two bags of bread. Uh, it takes them like many hours, literally many hours, just to get a bag of bread. Sometimes th- they stand like for they stand for hours, and when they their turn comes, the bakery said the bakery says, "Sorry, we are uh, we, we run off of a bread today. You, you should come tomorrow." This is just a hint. We are lucky up to date because we still have gas cylinders in in uh, in, the, in the apartment. Because when we evacuate before before the war, we uh, we filled the, our gas cylinders, the three gas cylinders, and we took them uh, when we uh, when my family uh, evacuated. But others families, the vast majorities of families now, they cook on fire, and I still I'm wondering like how how my family will get gas now if if they run out of uh, of gas, and of course they will. I still don't know. They live in an apartment. They can't. It's impossible, like to uh, to start a fire. They are. They live in an apartment. There is no way. My, uh, I asked them. I have uh, my niece, and just let me please tell you a, a short, smally, a, a short story. I'm the third generation refugee, and I will just tell you how. The, the four generations of my family suffered and have been suffering from the occupation. My grandfather from Yafa, when he was forcibly expelled by Israel in, in, in Nakba, uh, he was 10 uh, year old. He was expelled barefoot to Gaza, leaving 
all his belongings without him. He was an orphan. When he came here to Gaza, he lived in El Borish camp in the middle of the Strip all his life. And he used to tell us a lot about my origin uh, country, Yaffa, in, in Israel, or what's called now Israel. In 2010, he was in a, an interview, in a press interview, and he was uh, on uh, in Nakba on 15, uh, on the 15th of May. And he was talking about Nakba just after minutes after finishing the interview, he passed away when in Nakba did. He couldn't stand more. He couldn't speak about that. And then he passed away on in Nakba did on 2010. This is the first generation. The second generation, my uncles. My One of my uncles was expelled by Israel to uh, out of Gaza because he was a member of the Communist Party in the 80s. He went to Europe where he studied medicine and he's still there. And he, we, I, I haven't met him and none of us have, none of us has met him since then, except in 2013 during uh, the, abbrevia, the previous Egyptian president, Mohammed um, Morsi, my uncle managed to come to Gaza for, uh, for three weeks. My dad passed away. My grandmother passed away. My grandfather passed away. My other uncle passed away. And he hasn't. He, he, uh, he, he didn't and he couldn't see or meet any of them. All of them passed away, and he was far away. And this is the second generation. The third generation, I'm one of the third generation. I've lost my house twice. The first one was in during the uh, Israeli war in Gaza in 2008-2009. And the second time in, on, in 2000. Uh, in only 2012. During the first war in Gaza, we were sleeping. We just, we built, uh, we built our house, like it, it took us like three or, or four years to, to build our house. It was so expensive. It, it was the first years of, of the, of the uh, besiegement of the blockade on Gaza. And building materials were so expensive. And my mother, she was the only breadwinner, took tens of thousands of debts to build our house. And we, uh, we, uh, we moved to our house in October 28, two, just two months before the war. On the first day of the war, they, they, it was at maybe 1 a.m., they called our neighbor and warned him to evacu evacuate his house uh, before bombing him. And he was shouting at night and it was the first time for me. I just was, I was 13 year old, I was a child. And he was shouting like in, 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 in an insane way to, to, make, to, to wake up all neighbors. And we, uh, we just fled just a hundred meter maybe away from from our house when we heard 
the uh, the Israeli uh, war plan, which is F-16. It's coming in Gaza as F-16, or six, sorry, F-16. When it uh, bombed the house with three rockets, we laid down on on next or uh, next to a wall, just just a hundred meters away from from our house, and the rebels and the smoke suffocated us. It was it was inespeakable. We then we run, we completed, and then we run, like maybe a kilometer to reach our relatives' family to stay there. When we returned back again at six or seven a.m. to see what 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 had happened, what had happened, we didn't find anything. We just find rebels. I still remember how how my mother fainted when she saw her life savings. And this, we like when when my father passed away, he left his inheritance to us, and my mother bought everything, a lot of all our inheritance and all debts and all her life saving in that house, and it was flatted. And then it took us two years uh, to rebuild it. We took the compensation from the UN, I guess, or the government. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly because I was a child. In 2020, in 2012, on the last day of the war, they also bombed the same house and they flatted again our house. At that time, we didn't, we, at that time, we didn't, when, when our house was bombed, we, 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 we were still in debts from the first house. And it took us again years of displacement, bitter displacement. And when we received the compensation to uh, to rebuild our house again, it wasn't enough. And by the way, we have still uh, want five thousand dollars from the UN, and they didn't. They they hasn't. They haven't uh, bid us because they say always we, we are like there is no funds to you. So yeah, you should like pay to you. And we rebuilt the house again. And this is just a small story about how I, from the third generation, suffered and have ha, has been suffering from from that. And that experience has left indelible marks on me. The fourth generation, she's my niece. She's just 16 months old. Her name is Yafa. We named her Yafa after our original country, Yaffa, in, 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 in Israel. Two weeks ago, I was talking to my mother through, uh, through a video call, and whenever I call him, I, whenever I used to call him video, I used to, uh, to ask him to show me uh, Yaffa, to talk to her. And while I was talking to her, I was in, 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 in a park here, it's uh, Stevens Park, it's a public park, uh, while I was talking to them, there were massive bombardments without them. And Yafa was shouting and, and crying. And my mother just hugged her and they hide, they hide it under a table and it closed the, uh, the call. At that time, my, my heart like was beating fast. And I, I didn't know if, if they were targeted or not, or if the, uh, the, the bombardments were close to them or not, I, I didn't know. And I, I couldn't like call them again. 
while there at that time a small child a small a little like girl uh, was playing hide and seek with her with her sister and she asked me to hide behind the uh, behind a tree the tree i was uh, sitting uh, uh, I, I was sitting under a tree and the little girl wanted to hide behind it and she asked me politely if she could hide or not and of course i said yeah you can hide it and i just was was thinking why should our why our 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 children hide from bombing bombardments why all people hide just hide to play hide to have fun and my sister has thousands of of tens of thousands of children in gaza up to date 4000 children have been killed why should all generations all palestinian generations suffer from the occupation why all the world just when when it comes i don't know i don't know how the the world think the the western leaders the, the western presidents i don't know how like we are sick of this double standard we are sick of all this like they are they have been calling for a humanitarian pause not a ceasefire at least ceasefire can put an end to this bloodshed or this massive killing at least like for for a few years no they want just a humanitarian pause they want to feed gazans they want to give them a little bit of a little, like some hours of electricity a little bit like a sm- like water they want to they want to give them water but then they want to start killing them again. Is this the democracy? Is this the human rights? They, they claim, they have been claiming, they have, they, uh, they advocate for, I don't know, it's, it's insane. I was, for, for, uh, last week, I was talking to my friend, he's Khalid Al-Hissi, and uh, he's uh, a journalist, and he's a contributor to uh, Electric Intifada, by the way. Khalid was diagnosed with leukemia just 10 days ago, and he was in, uh, in, in, in the Turkish hospital in Gaza, which is the only hospital for cancer patients in Gaza. It was bombed also by Israel. Uh, and now it, it, uh, uh, the hospital doesn't work. Uh, he told me, Ahmed, my, he, he needs uh, chemotherapy, and he told me, Ahmed, my, uh, my treatment is not available in Gaza right now. And I can't travel to Egypt, to Israel, to the West Bank to go them. Ahmed, I'm relying on painkillers. I need treatment for cancer. What I can access is painkillers. Just imagine this. My brother, I'm not sure if this is appropriate to tell or to, to say or not, but this is important, like to see, like to tell to tell the world how Gazans are living now. My brother told me, Ahmed, we don't flush the toilet from the first time. We have to wait many people to use it, then we can flesh to save some water. A lot of refugees, a lot of displaced people in, 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 in UN schools use it, they visit children, they visit twice and three times. They clean it by water if they manage to find water to use it again because they don't have money to buy. And there is there a lot, the vast majorities of shops in Gaza, pharmacies, all of them have been shutting down since the, the war eruption. My other friend, Hamza, Hamza Salha, he is also a journalist and a contributor to uh, Electric Intifada. He lives, he is now, he has been stuck in Jabalia. 
three days ago or two days ago, he sent me a message on WhatsApp and he told me, Ahmed, we are living literally the last minutes of our, of our lives. The bombardment is so close to us and we don't know when our turn will come. And I, I, I still, I, I've, and I've been trying to, to reach out to him since then and I couldn't. And I'm not sure, and I don't know if he's alive or not up to date. It's so difficult. It's it's so difficult, and it's not about Gazans who are in, in, in uh, Palestinians who are still in the in, in the Gaza Strip. Even Gazans who left who uh, who left the Strip, like us, for example, our our lives uh, have turned into hell, literally hell. It's we, we have been suffering from nightmares, anxiety, insomnia, stress. We can't sleep well. We wake up tens of times at night, sweating, like having nightmares, crying every day, panic attacks. We don't know what, what we literally don't know if our families will be alive after a minute, after an hour. Literally, we don't know that if, if they will or not. A lot of my friends here, and I'm one of them, we went to psychologists here and to help us to manage this anxiety and all this. And we we have been taking anti-anxiety medications just to tackle, to, to, to go through all this. And we still, we are struggling to do that. It's insane, it's, it's insane. Like one of my friends, she's Maram Salah, her family, uh, she, she also, she's studying here in Dublin with me. Her family from El Karama in, in Gaza City, uh she hasn't been in contact with her family for 14 days and she doesn't know if her family is alive or not can you imagine she told me her family her family evacuated from gaza to Deir el balah uh, they lived in in um in a room it was uh, for for horses stable because there is no there is no no place for them to go. They don't want to go to to any uh, UN schools because even by the way, like UN shelters in Gaza is, is like they are hell. Like people there are suffering a lot. A lot of people told me there, Ahmed, we like we prefer to die rather than living there now. One of my friends also, she is Sumaya Abu Nada. And her sister is Hiba Abu Nada. She's a writer and a poetry, and she's a well-known writer in Gaza. She was killed. My Nada Sumaya is my friend, and she was the social media coordinator at We Are Not Numbers. They were safely having their uh, dinner at the house in Rafah. They evacuated from Gaza to the south, which is supposed to be the safe south, as the Israeli army claims. They were having their dinner when, when Israel bombed their house without any justifiable reason, just because they can. All of them were under the rebels, they, and all of them were pulled out from under the rebels. Her sister were killed, unfortunately, and tens of the neighbors also were killed. Since then, they have been living or they have evacuated to a Nasser hospital in the south. I managed to talk to Sumaya after that. It was maybe eight or seven days ago. 
she told me one of our relatives in Rafah also has another apartment and he invited us to go there, but we refused because we still have the, the, the horror. But she told me, Ahmed, whenever I sleep, I wake up on, and I look immediately on the roof and I want to see if the roof will drop on us or not. She told me, Ahmed, we, we are, there are more than 10,000 uh, displaced Palestinians in, in Nasser Hospital. She told me, Ahmed, we wake up and sleep while thinking on the line of water, on the line of toilet, on the line of food. Just can imagine that. 10,000 people want to use just six toilets or five toilets in schools. 10,000 people without any cleaning tools. And the vast majorities of schools in Gaza and in, the, in, in, in Jabalia have no water. Can you just can you imagine? It's insane. It's it's unbelievable. It's this is this yeah. is this is similar to nothing. Yeah. Ahmed, it it's just listening to you, it's uh I mean for all of us it's 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 very difficult, you know, just listening to you, I can identify with a lot of what you said. Uh in terms of the emotions we go through, uh, the fear, the panic, the anxiety, but for for you and for your your friends and colleagues in Dublin and other Palestinians from Gaza who are away from their families, it's amplified a thousand times, and uh, it's just so difficult to imagine the uncertainty every time you can't connect with them, and I know just from our experience that we try to stay in touch with many of our friends and contributors in Gaza. And, you know, you feel relieved when you hear from them, but the relief lasts a short time because, you know, anything can happen any moment. And uh, so you are truly living, they are living a nightmare, but, but you are too. Um, I wanted to ask you uh about your experience in Ireland, because Ireland is is a bit different from the rest of Europe in that there is, I know from having been there many times, that there's a great love for the Palestinian people in Ireland and there is a great um, understanding of what the Palestinian people uh, have gone through and are going through. What's your experience? Did you attend any of the protests in Dublin? Are you feeling some solidarity, at least a little bit more than you might in another country? What's that experience like? Yes, uh, it's uh, actually this is uh, really helpful, and uh, sometimes it uh, it's a kind of relief here to see how uh, the vast majorities of Irish people. Uh, are pro-Palestine, let's say. And uh, because they feel us because they were under the British occupation before. And whenever I, uh, yeah, of course, and I go to every uh, protest and rally for Palestine. And by the way, there are Arabs, of course, and Muslims, of course, and people like, let's say, uh, who have connections with Palestine, but the vast majorities of these uh, rallies, sorry, and uh, marches are Irish people, are non-Arabs, non-Muslim people. I I remember the first protest uh, occurred. I covered it, and I asked uh, a lot of Irish people, 
And I told them, I asked them why they are here. And they told me that like all of them agreed on one on, on one thing. They told me, Ahmed, you don't need to be a Palestinian. You don't need to be an Arab. You need to be a human being to say stop to all this massive, massive killing, to all this massive killing of children, to all this intentionally, intentionally uh, starvation in Gaza. You, you just need to be a human being. And this is, uh, this is like, it's, it's, it's really good. And it let, like, it lets us up a kind of, you know, uh, but I, I just, let me please tell you something. I, I just, uh, I, I forgot to uh, shed a light on it. When we came here, all Gazans, we are 12, uh, 11 Gazan students here. And all Gazans, all my friends, all my Gazan friends who now are out of Gaza, almost all of us are still traumatized. There are indelible marks on us. Whenever, like, uh, a couple of days ago, there was a Halloween day. All people here were laughing, having parties, enjoying parties, drinking, uh, uh, hanging out. It's It was like, it was a, a so happy day for a lot of people except Gazans. We were, we were shaking whenever we hear the fire uh, fireworks here. Even right now, whenever we hear the ambulance sirens, we, we, we get scared. We get scared. It's like we we are still traumatized from the previous wars. It's it's impossible like to to get rid of all that. Last month we went hiking uh, to to Hoth, which is which is uh, a cliff near uh, Dublin. We were on the top of the cliff. There were eight of us. Five of us were Gazans, and the three uh, were not. We saw a helicopter. Once we saw it. We unconsciously tried to hide, and the three were, were laughing, and they asked us why. And we told us all the planes in the world are associated in our minds with killing, with bombings, with bombardments. It's, it's like many of my friends here, Irish friends, asked me to, to go out with them during the, the Halloween day. I couldn't actually because I literally feel guilty. It's not like whenever I I I listen to, to music by accident, I feel guilty. When I when I have a nutritious food or like just to sleep well as anyone, I feel guilty because my family can't get all that. I still like and I thought it was just me. I, I ask all my Gazan friends. And all of them the same. Just like our like our suffering literally has reached this point. One of my friends from Gaza, last month, uh, on, on the first, I guess on the fifth or sixth day, Israel bombed our uncle's my uncle's house. There were 12 members in it. All of them are civilians. The vast majority of them were children and women. They bombed the house and all of them were stuck under the rubbles. They killed two of my cousins uh, and 
the rest, the, the 18 members were injured. Two of them needed urgent surgeries, but they couldn't do it because uh, the waiting list were, was full and they couldn't have the turn. And up, up to date, they need the surgeons, the surgeries, but they can't get it. Just just imagine the, how the health, the, the, uh, the health system in, in Gaza due to the, uh, to the war. And when, when people like my friends from Gaza uh, sent me their condolences, and one of them, one of my friends in Gaza told me, Ahmed, well, I know it's, it's heartbreaking, but let me please tell you something. You know, like how Israel has wiped uh, tens of families here. You, should, you shouldn't like, I know it's heartbreaking, but you shouldn't be that sad because Israel just killed two of your uncles, not that twim- the 20 members of your families. And maybe he's right. Maybe, yeah, maybe I should be grateful to Israel because it, it just killed two, not, not all of them. Like, literally, our suffering has reached this point. Literally, it's, yani, I, so I, I'm, I'm literally at loss of words. A lot of uh, Irish media, Irish journalists and Western media here, they, they have uh, contacted me a lot here uh, for interviews. And... Um, Luckily, many of Irish media are a kind of objective and neutral when it, when it comes to covering uh, the war. Um, they, they always ask me, Ahmed, what is it like to be in Gaza? Or, Ahmed, what's it like to, to be a father of, of, uh, of a baby in Gaza? And I... Uh, um, I, I can't answer that question because it's impossible for me. I just have uh, a video. My, my, my brother sent me a video for Yafa. She was, uh, he was uh, playing with her and he, uh, they were on the window. And while playing with her, there, were, there was a massive bombing in front of, of, of her. And she was crying. And, she, and he uh, carried her quickly and ran away. And I showed the video and I showed him the video and told him just see this is what's like to be a father of Gaza in Gaza. Ahmed Asamak, uh, you are a refugee from Yaffa. Uh, you're a contributor to the Electronic Intifada, a marvelous journalist. Um, and you know while while you've been speaking, there have been just a uh, loads of comments from our viewers and listeners, um, people standing in solidarity, people appreciating um, and, 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 and being shaken and very moved by your words. Um, so we want to thank you. Um, we, uh, of course, will keep in touch with you and please keep in touch with us. Please let us know how your family is. Um, we just can't imagine, and um, and we're so grateful. Thank you so much, Ahmed. Thank you, Nora. And uh, just let me please uh, tell you the last word. Yeah, I would. I'm I'm really grateful for the electronic Intifada for a lot of, of 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 reasons. First of all, you always give the opportunity for Gazans, for young Gazans, writers and journalists to write, to give a voice to the voiceless in Gaza, to shed a light on the suffering to the 
unspeakable suffering in Gaza. And I would like to, to, to share you with the two successful stories, let's say, and uh, in Gaza, I used, uh, I remember I, I wrote a story about uh, cancer patients who were prevented by Israel from uh, getting their treatment in the West Bank and Israel. And after publishing the story, uh, a lot of human rights agencies, uh, a lot of uh, human rights agencies, uh, sorry, centers republished that story. And after just a week, uh, they were granted because maybe there was a lot of, of pressure on Israel and uh, many human rights centers uh, intervened in their stories. And uh, there are a lot of other stories like very sim like are similar to this like uh, an electronic intifada uh, has given a voice to the all voiceless in Gaza and helped them a lot. And thank you so much for all that. Thank you, Ahmed. You were really moved by all your words and we're grateful to have the opportunity to uh, work with uh, colleagues like you and all our colleagues in Gaza who continue, even though we tell them, I'll say this again, even though we tell them we don't want you to do anything except to look after yourself and your family, they continue to write, they continue to send us uh, articles, sometimes by voice messages, sometimes they send us the whole article on WhatsApp because it's the only way to communicate because there is a desire to communicate with the world and to, to, to be heard. And um, we appreciate you being willing to come and, and talk to us and to talk, talk to our audience, as difficult as it is. Um, and uh, thank you for doing all you do. And thank you for uh, being the voice for uh, people in Gaza that you are. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ahmed Asamak, uh, joining us from Dublin, Ireland. This is the Electronic Intifada. Live stream, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Asa Wynn-Stanley. Thank you all for joining us. Um, we're going to head into our second uh, hour here, and uh, we are delighted to be joined by uh, another colleague and contributor, uh, Louis Alday. Asa, do you want to um, introduce Louis properly? Yeah, well, uh, Louis is a, a writer and a historian, and um, he's recently written a piece for us um, about a particular aspect of Israeli propaganda, um, which I know is of a lot of interest to a lot of our to a lot of our viewers and our readers. And the piece was about how Israel, in its most recent its current war, the genocidal war in the Gaza Strip, has made a major theme of its propaganda to try and associate Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic resistance movement, with ISIS, which is a very different organization. But they are trying to say that Hamas equals ISIS, and even that Hamas is worse than ISIS. So, um, Louis's article is a really important antidote to that kind of propaganda. So welcome to the show, Louis. Hi, Louis. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Hi, Louis. Nice to nice to talk to you face to face. Yeah. Very much so, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I would definitely echo what um, what Ahmed said. We're, I think many of us are extremely grateful to the electronic interplader because it's one of very few principled, reliable, professional outlets uh, that pushes back against exactly the kind of egregious propaganda that um, we just we've just seen there. Um, but actually, one thing someone brought to my attention just literally about half an hour ago, um, which I think is worth to give a little bit of context on the kind of propaganda or you know PR struggle that is going on. Um, the former prime minister of <clears throat> of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who I'm sure. Well, you all know who he is, and probably most of your listeners do as well. A particularly thuggish, uh, fascist um, political leader in Israel. Um, before he headed to New York and Washington um, two days ago, he tweeted um, in Hebrew on his uh, Twitter or X account. Um, this is, you know, from the auto translate. So maybe take the exact wording with a, with a pinch of salt. Um, but he says, tonight I'm going on a political information tour in New York and Washington. Our, inter I mean, our international situation is not good. My goal is to help the Israeli government strengthen our position in public opinion, in Congress and in the administration in order to give the IDF commanders full freedom of action to wipe out Hamas. World, opinion, world public opinion is not in our favour. For example, there are 15 times, exclamation mark, the number of views of pro-Palestinian slash Hamas content compared to pro-Israeli content on TikTok. I will work with all my might to change this and give the Israeli government a boost. Um, and so I think in a way that is encouraging um, and it shows that the fact that I think this, we, and you know, we can discuss the, the Hamas's ISIS framing specifically, I think, I think that worked or is working or did work on the people, on kind of people that were already convinced. Um, I think initially when there was the initial blitz of, you know, really egregious atrocity propaganda in the first few days post October the 7th, I think it probably worked on a broader group of people then. Um, but I think what we have, you know, writing that article already feels like a lifetime ago. You know, it was two, yeah. two, maybe three weeks ago, and it, things have moved so far from then that actually, you know, I have, I've not been keeping tabs on it kind of that systematically. But I think I think that the, the Hamas's ISIS um, justification has kind of almost dropped off a little bit, and I think they're trying they're trying different things. Um, because the savagery of the last few weeks, I think, I think in some ways they've almost stopped trying to justify in a, in a certain way. It's like they're just doing it. Uh, obviously, they're concerned, hence why Naftali Bennett is, is going to the US in t specifically for those reasons. Um, but I don't think that the Hamas's ISIS framing is really working anymore beyond the people that would be inclined to believe it anyway. I do, having said that, there is a, you know, I, con I con constantly try to remind myself that, you know, largely the people that I interact with and follow, you know, we are, we are in a bubble to some extent and I consciously try and step outside of that bubble and there is a, uh, a significant portion of, you know, Islamophobic, opinion that can be uh, tapped into to aid that 
Um, but, you know, in his opening remarks, Ali mentioned um, that 80% of the US public um, want, to, want to see spire. 80% of Republicans, uh, sorry, 66% sorry, of the yeah, sorry. 80% of Democrats and 57% of Republicans, which shocked me, frankly. Yeah, the, the, so a, a clear majority of Republicans even wanted a ceasefire. And this was, you know, before we'd even seen the worst of it. Yeah. So the, the, the same is true in the UK. The most the most recent public opinion poll by YouGov that I've seen, I think, was from the 20th of October. So, you know, just absolutely unspeakable acts have been committed since then. <laughs> And then it was, um, I think, 76 percent of the of those polled, the UK public, wanted a ceasefire. Uh, obviously, a ceasefire, wanting a ceasefire, you know, a, a, a manifold of opinions can be contained within that. But I think the initial outrage that was generated, you know, very, very, very deliberately, with the atrocity propaganda um, regarding the behead, you know, the supposed beheaded babies, etc. I think that did give, I think Israel could have got away with, you know, let's say a week of carnage uh, from that, but they've continued and they've gone to this kind of maximalist position of they're not going to stop. And I think it is very evident that that is causing them and the US consequently. And, you know, again, what you opened with Ali, the fact that the US is trying to imply they want to restrain Israel, but are helpless to do so. And, you know, obviously it's transparently absurd, but it's also them wanting to limit or attempt to mitigate the global, uh, you know, I think PR, using the word PR kind of ch cheapens the, the severity of what we're talking about to an extent, but, you know, it's a, it's a PR disaster um, and it's not going to be forgotten. And I think it's one of the ways in which I don't think it's, any exaggeration to say that October the 7th and, and what's happened over the last uh, almost you know a month tomorrow is really a complete historic watershed, um, not just for Palestine, but for the world. Um, and it's something, what happened on October 7th is from the perspective of the collective West, it's something that was not supposed to happen. You Let know, Sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah, I, I want to I put something to you, uh, Louis, but first I want to read this because you're right. Now it's November 6th, so it's, it's really a month since October 7th, and it does feel in a way like, you know, ages ago. Um, but I want to read you this quote from Benjamin Netanyahu, which was made, this was published in... Uh, the Times of Israel on October 11th, but he may have made this comment a day earlier or two days earlier, but it was in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. And he said, this is direct quote from Netanyahu. They took dozens of children, bound them up, burned them and executed them. They beheaded soldiers. They mowed down these youngsters who came to a nature festival put five jeeps around this depression in the soil, and like Babinyar, they mowed them down, making sure they killed everybody. That's what Benjamin Netanyahu said. Babinyar, of course, is, is, was one of the biggest single massacres of the, the Holocaust in, in Ukraine, where Ukrainian nationalists and uh, Germany carried out that massacre. 
not a single sentence of that statement has been has been substantiated by Israel. Not a single claim. Not the beheaded babies. Not the mass execution over a pit. Uh, not the uh, uh, burned bodies. Uh, we've talked about this on this live stream and in our articles about how, in fact, the evidence that's coming out is that many, if not most, of the Israeli civilians were killed by Israeli forces just going in and indiscriminately shooting everything. But but that those claims from Netanyahu and from others were what defined the public mood. And now nobody is going back. Nobody in the Western media or Western politicians are going back to Netanyahu and saying, wait, you said all this. Where's the evidence? Yeah, It just, uh, it just doesn't get... Uh, get revisited it, it's it's treated as if uh, it, it's somehow true now what are the point i want to come to you mentioned bubbles louis i wonder if what happened is this that the bubble that the, that the israelis too exist in a bubble and that bubble is first of all their own settler colonial psychopathy where they just can't feel empathy for anyone other than themselves and the bubble of Western elites, of the United States government, the European Union, the British government, where everybody was telling them, we have 100%, we support you, go in, do what you want. You know, the Germans who are crying all the time about never again, never again, and uh, remembrance culture and lessons of history told them, you go in and do whatever you want. You have, you have, we have your back whether the Israelis are also in a bubble where they just could not understand what the global reaction would be uh, and that how their propaganda would could not carry them beyond those first initial days when, when the media was in a shock. And that's, of course, not to say, as, as I said, you know, we're not seeing all of this translated into political action, but what, what do you think? What, what, what do you think of the dynamics that led Israel to believe it could do this? I mean, I think you're right that there is a level of delusion um, that is inherent to the settler colonial ethos of, of Israel. And I think what's what has that I think that has actually become more transparent to people that either were ignorant of it completely or would have been of more of the position that, you know, Netanyahu and people around him are the problem. Whereas what has become kind of grotesquely and disturbingly apparent in, in manifold ways, whether it's kind of TikTok trends within Israel or um, pop singers singing genocidal songs or, you know, these various ways in which it has become very clear to people that this is not a minority um, opinion within Israel. And, you know, again, this, the, the polling statistics in Israel showing, I think there was that statistic that 83% uh, of the population believed that humanitarian considerations shouldn't be considered in Gaza. And I think what people have woken up to increasingly um, is the dehumanization that is inherent, inherent to a settler colonial project. They cannot and will not view 
the Palestinians in Gaza or elsewhere as human. Um, and I think that has become clear to people in a very, very disturbing way that I think it's in, gonna, the, the cat is out of the bag, to use a slightly trite uh, cliche, that I think that's going to be very hard for people to unsee. Um, not only the level of violence that is being enacted, but the way in which it is being actively celebrated by, you know, if not the entirety of uh, Israeli society from very, very significant and large swathes of it. Um, and actually, in, in more than one case, I've seen, you know, what can only be described as a kind of a sadistic pleasure in the suffering of, of, of the Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere, not to mention what we've seen in the West Bank and the, the horrendous torture and humiliation that is ongoing as well. Now, Louis, I, I want to ask you another question. You're in the UK and you I know that you uh, follow very closely the politics in the UK and also politics on the left. And the UK is not really remarkable. It's very typical of Western countries. It's, you know, there are a dime a dozen, these American vassal states, Ireland being perhaps the slight exception we talked about earlier. So, you know, living in the typical European uh, colony of the United States, what explains for you uh, the reaction of the political class in the UK? How is it that the people can be so overwhelmingly disgusted and horrified and willing to come out in hundreds of thousands or even millions every weekend for the past few weeks but the political class from the conservative government to the alleged Labour opposition are 100% behind this genocide. What is going on there? Give us some bigger... This is Obviously, this isn't just... This didn't start with Gaza. What is no, happening? I, no, and this is, you know, I think, as has been said many times over the years by many people, Palestine kind of... Or the Palestinian cause clarifies... Uh, a, man, a magnitude of things. And I think that's probably not been truer than it is right now. Uh, things are very, very clear. And one of those things is the, the extreme disconnect between very large swathes of public, public opinion, not just in the UK, um, but maybe particularly in some ways or, or in some aspects and, and the political elite. Uh, and obviously, as you kind of alluded to, that very, very much includes the supposed opposition in this country, um, which not only on Palestine, but on a, on a, on a uh, array of things, if it has any criticism of the, 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 the current ruling conservative government, it's criticism that comes from effectively from the right. Um, and I think, you know, it's very, very clear what, what Keir Starmer's role is and has been um, and I also think it's important as well to, and he, to point and out. And he's just for our American and global viewers, Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labour Party, the supposed left or centre-left opposition in the UK. Yeah. And, so, and, and, yeah, and, and support Zionism without qualification, Starmer. Yeah. And I think one and something that is very telling to what you've just what you've just said, Ali, and and kind of just really makes it clear what a farce the supposed uh, democratic system in the UK is on a daytime TV show today. 
um, a kind of senior statesman politician uh, from the Conservative Party called Michael Portillo, um, who was kind of was kind of had a ruthless uh, reputation in his day, and is you know f- f- right wing, typical right wing, uh, horrendous person. But he's kind of been softened of late because he's got a very popular series on British television about going on rail journeys. You know, he's this kind of monster, but he's been kind of reinvented as this twee kind of. <laughs> I'm going to go on a on a charming train journey. It's kind of disgustingly English kind of phenomenon. Anyway, I, I've been um, on train journeys in the UK, and they're very rarely charming. I have to say. <laughs> well, I, I won't comment on that. Um, <laughs> but he's on this. He's on this daytime TV show, and he he openly says, "You know what." And bear in mind, this is his supposed uh, political enemy in a way that he's talking about in, in Keir Starmer. He says, you know, I think I think Starmer deserves um, deserves a lot of um, a lot of credit. He's showing a lot of metal, uh, M-E-T-T-L-E, metal, uh, because when or if or when, you know, Labour get in power, the US are going to want to know, are we are Labour going to stay with the US completely? And so for him, and he, it's almost like one of those things where you're saying, he's really saying the quiet part out loud here. He's making very clear that what Starmer is doing, he said that the reason he is refusing to even consider calling a cease for a ceasefire is he's showing his, you know, soon to be partners in the US. I am with this insane imperialistic genocidal project 100%. I'm a safe pair of hands. And that, you know, and that I alluded to what Starmer's role is. Starmer's role, he's been brought in to make sure that the blip, however um, imperfect, even on Palestine, the, the Corbyn period was, you know, that's a whole different topic. But Starmer has been brought in to ensure that can never, ever happen again. Uh, any yeah. any kind of uh, pro, pro-Palestinian position within Labour is now completely beyond the pale. And it's just something I was going to say earlier, which I think is important for people to understand the historical context, is that it is the Corbyn years that they, that are the exception. It, Starmer is illustrative of the nature of the Labour Party from its inception and through most of its period of being in power or, or opposition. It is an imperialistic party that has never had fundamentally a problem with the endorsement or even the enactment of imperialist slaughter abroad if it if it furthers uh us slash uk uh, political interests so starmer is just doing his role basically and so michael, Port- michael portillo is actually correct then that keir starmer does deserve a lot of credit from the british ruling class then because he's you know from from his point of view he's absolutely right because he is sh- yeah he's i he's mean you know and, and you look at starmer's career he's he is a uh, a very loyal, ruthless servant of the of the UK ruling class or the U, or the UK state. But then, um, in, that, in, in that case, I mean, that just just to sort of drop my drop my microphone. Um, Technical difficulties. Uh, so, like in that in in that case, if you think about the UK as as fairly uh, typical rather than exceptional. In general, I mean, jo- John, you're in Canada. Is any major party in Canada speaking out against this? You've got the NDP there, which is allegedly a left-wing party as well. Have, what's what's their position been? 
No, there people can't say ceasefire. It's like it's stuck on their stuck in their throats. They can't get the words out. Um, it's it's we're in lockstep here in Canada with the United States, yeah. and that's always been the case. So this Trudeau is actually said it by accident, though, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That that was. I don't know if uh, I, I'd, be, I'd be putting uh, Tamara on the spot, <laughs> but maybe uh, at some point, Tamara, if you're able to find that video, it's pretty remarkable of Justin Trudeau accidentally yeah. calling for a ceasefire and then correcting himself. I think that's worth seeing if we can, if we can find it. But um, but this, Louis. I mean, this speaks to the bigger crisis. Because it's not just the UK. I mean, you can say Keir Starmer name, you know, but these these names ultimately, these are these are tiny, insignificant players. You look at the situation in, as we just said, in Canada or in Germany, where it's even worse, or in Italy, where or or in France, where the only people saying, see, I mean, you can find a few dissenting voices, but. Otherwise, the political class is in lockstep on one side, the pro the pro genocide side, and the people are on the other side. And I mean, I'm I'm asking you as a historian, uh, how can we understand this bigger picture of where we are of this 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 sort of crisis of democracy? Where oh, let's hear from Justin Trudeau. <laughs> um, we need to see a cease. Uh, we need to see a, a humanitarian pause so we can flow. Uh, we need to see ceasing of, of, of the levels of violence that we're seeing. God. It's literally like a comedy sketch. Can, Completely. Can we, play, can we play it one more time? That's, I mean, that's I, like I a, that's like a scene from Veep or something. Yeah. yeah. see a cease. Uh, we need to see a, a humanitarian pause so we can flow. Uh, we need to see ceasing of, of, of the levels of violence that we're seeing. What? <laughs> I mean, if he wasn't so genocidal, it would be like I it mean, would be we're, hilarious. We're laughing yeah, exactly. because right, I mean, yeah. you got to get your your yeah. you, you got to get the laughs where you can in these depressing it's times. So bleak. It's like he he'd he'd forgotten his lines, and he was, <laughs> you know, there was almost a sense that there might even be a human under there, right? And that he was, was like fighting to claw out of yes, his. he had to throat. fight. His normal human reaction, which right. says we need a ceasefire, and remember his lines, and remember what he's paid to do, and remember what his job is, yeah. which is to repeat the American position. Tamara is reminding us that someone on Twitter said, when the script handed to you by the Embassy of Hate is just too inhuman for your tongue to allow to deliver smoothly. <laughs> Well, it was interesting. I don't know where he was, but when he was speaking, in the background was the U.S. Capitol building. So I, I don't know if he was in the U.S. or so, what that backdrop. To was. Lend moral support to the, you know, the, the the cruise missiles that are being sent. But I mean, for my question for you, Louis, and and you may not be. I'm asking you a question that none of us have an answer to. So I'm I'm. I'm, but, just, I, I'm but I will I will respond to maybe part of what you're asking and I, I and I think it relates to where we started about um talking about propaganda and the the success or not of propaganda um I think one reason in which it's you know if we go by what Bennett is saying if we go by public opinion polls if we kind of anecdotally here and there because certainly in my life in my world rather um people that 
would usually consider themselves to be not political or, or apolitical, let's say, which is obviously in, in an actual fact is a deeply political p- position, but that would be how they would I- identify. Uh, so I generally not really care that much or be aware that much of things beyond their own nose. They're, they're impacted or, and affected and upset uh, and in some cases protesting this in a way that they have maybe, in, I think in some cases, probably nothing else before. Uh, and I think that speaks to the the barbaric nature of, of and just the just the insanity of the of the violence we're seeing uh, but then also the ability of social media for us to see it you know as really as it is happening in just kind of horrific painful detail but i think to go back to your point ali about the crisis of democracy and i you know i would say i would kind of make that more broad that the the crisis of the capitalist west whereby especially you know, to talk about the country I'm in, where material conditions are just collapsing in front of people's faces, increasingly uh, people don't believe at all what the government is saying. And it's completely obvious the disdain they have for the people that they are supposedly ruling on behalf of. And something happened, I think, two days ago, which kind of might seem unrelated in some ways, but for me, it kind of felt related to, to Gaza and what we're seeing. The the current Home Secretary, who is kind of particularly evil, um, but again, like you said, Ali, she's just a cog. I don't want to make it too much about her. She's called Suella Braverman. She announced a new policy that is effectively going to outlaw uh, homeless people in the UK from, from sleeping in tents, um, which is almost kind of comically absurdly evil and people reacted that a lot of people reacted that in a, in a kind of outraged way um and she her justification was that it, it's a lifestyle choice to be homeless uh, and this is at a time of complete economic crisis rents are completely unaffordable you know i won't go off, go off too much in a tangent but both that policy but also gaza in its most extreme case this is this is what this is how the collective West ruling class will treat any group of people that they have decided are not human. And I think on some level, people that previously would have consoled themselves with their own relative material comfort are increasingly aware and on some level disturbed, upset and scared about that. And there is a complete crisis. And I think this is you know we're we're almost we're a month in tomorrow but i think we are we're in a new world and i think the 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 chances that there is going to be some kind of de-escalation where we fall back to some kind of pre-october the 7th status quo i just can't really see how that happens um the US and Israel have effectively boxed themselves into a corner with this maximalist position that we are going to, def- or Israel is going to defeat ISIS and the US is going to let them do that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Freudian, defeat uh, Hamas. The reason ISIS came to my mind is because the previous foreign, se- the previous home secretary, just as a little side note, which shows the absurdity of the Hamas is, equals ISIS uh, framing. The previous foreign secretary in the UK is called Preeti Patel. She was forced to resign in 2017 because she went to Israel and she had unauthorized or su- supposedly unauthorized meetings with Israeli officials 
where she was trying to use UK aid money to fund uh, Israeli military hospital that was treating Al-Qaeda fighters fighting in Israel. Um, and, you know, that's one of the points that I made in, um, in my piece about the, 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 offen the offensiveness of the Hamas is ISIS framing is that, well, there are many ways, but one of them is when it suited the interest to do so, Israel and the West supported the very kinds of groups that they are now, or were at least until very recently, trying to tar Hamas with. And not only that, Hamas fought a very deadly conflict with ISIS uh, in Gaza, in which Hamas uh, uh, police officers were killed. Um, so there, there are just so many layers to the grotesqueness of uh of both what is happening, but also the framing of which uh, it is being, it's being justified. Um, and I think, yeah, I think lots of things are being brought out very into the open by what has happened. That, for obvious reasons, our focus is is on Gaza, but the the implications extend well beyond that and well beyond the region. And the chances, I. The chances, I, I believe, the chances, and you know, obviously I'm not alone in this, but I think the chances of a regional war that will have global and historical implications are not insignificant. Um, and I think for all of us who are kind of on the, on the outside looking in, it's really important for us to not give in to and I'm kind of talking to myself as much as anyone else, because it's hard, is to not give in to despair from the privileged outside position that we have. Um, because the Palestinians certainly aren't, or the Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere certainly aren't. So it's incumbent on, a, on us to, 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 to not. And you, I think in your opening remarks, you said similarly that we have to continue uh, doing what we're doing. Because I think this, you know, this, whatever happens now, it's going to be a long struggle. Uh, a multifaceted long struggle um, that will primarily be fought, you know, on the ground, but people outside certainly have a, a role to play within that. Um, and, you know, many Palestinian groups, um, even uh, Said Hassan Nasrallah, I think, mentioned to himself the importance of pushing back against propaganda. You know, people directly involved are, are aware that there is a role to play for, from people externally, even in the West. Yeah, he um, said the, the fight the fight for international opinion is one of the fronts that Israel is actually fighting on. Yeah. <laughs> well, Louis, thank you very much. Um, we're going to move to our next segment in a minute, but I think um, I, I would just like to recommend again to all our readers to go and read your piece, um, Worse Than ISIS Debunking Israeli Propaganda. There it is. Go and read it. And there's a lot of you can follow the links in it as well to learn more about what Louis was talking about in terms of the historical links between Israel and some of these violent uh, Wahhabist extremist organizations like ISIS, like Al Qaeda, specifically as part of the proxy war in Syria against Syria. Um, and and if I may just, uh, Louis, if you just take a few seconds and, and tell people about the other work you're doing, you're doing important publishing work that relates to Palestinian history and that can help people get a uh, some more of the background and context to all of this. What's one of the latest 
things that you you've just put out a a, a book recently um yeah so yeah there's a few things that we said so one i have a, a website called liberated text which is a book review website but not for new books um books that have been overlooked censored um underappreciated or um kind of ignored in some way um that we review and then on the kind of side of that in collaboration with ebb magazine we started uh publishing uh those books um or some of those books um and the first book that we published last year the first in that collaboration was a book called on zionist literature um by Hassan Kanafani um which I actually quote in that article. Oh, about, <laughs> um, but there's also but there's several Palestine related reviews on the website, and I would really if someone I would really recommend if someone what feels like they kind of know where they stand, or maybe they don't know fully where they stand. I'm, I assume most people listening would know where they stand, but if you want to get a clearer background on what is Zionist colonialism and kind of how have we reached this point. Or how to be the initial early period. There's a book review there um, called Zionist Colonialism in Palestine um, by someone called Faye Sayyid, uh, which is an extremely good introduction. Uh, the book, um, the review is by me. I guess it's all right. Um, the book is what is really important. Um, and there are, I mean, there are several Palestine-related reviews. There's one there by uh, Steve Salata, uh, which is a, a very relevant and important book as well, actually. Um, there's a book review of um, Basil al-Araj's uh, kind of collected works by Hazem Jamjoum, um, which is also uh, relevant. Um, yeah, so I would encourage people, and especially I would also encourage people to... Um, if there is a book that you feel is kind of really important to the present moment in some way that has not been fully appreciated, then please get in touch. Um, Cause we, yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to publish something that is useful for the current moment. That's kind of what, what it's, what it's about. Um, and there are more things in the, in the pipeline, Palestine related, including um, publishing, but I'll leave that for, for another time. That's great. And again, that website is liberated texts dot com liberated text.com louis alday uh thank you so much for you so uh, much. your contribution and for being with us uh, on Thanks. the live stream we'll uh, we, we would love to have you back for more analysis as this yeah. war of propaganda continues obviously i'd be honored thank you guys thank, thank you, thank you. Thanks so much louis and this is the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, that was Louis Alday. We are now going to turn to our in-house uh, war analyst, John Elmer, contributing editor at the Electronic Intifada. John, um, what have you specifically been watching closely over the last few days, especially after the weekend? Uh, we saw a bunch of new videos come out from the Qassam Brigades. Um, how can you assess uh, the war at this point? Yeah, well, so now we're a, a, a week into the ground war. Um, we're starting to see some of the movements take shape and understand a little bit um, what, what Israel's plan and where they're moving. We've seen fierce fighting, fierce resistance. Um, the resistance movements um, 
the Kassam Brigades and Sarai al-Quds um, are putting out constant communiques with their actions. Abu Obeda said the other day that they couldn't even keep track of all of their actions. But just to give people a sense, on any given day, there's between 30 and 50 um, described actions that range from, you know, the constant rocket fire that's been happening on Israeli cities and towns, as well as the mortars uh, on mustering troops on the borders. We've seen Qassam use their air force suicide drones um, aimed at uh, mustering Israeli troops. We've seen them drop uh, drone dropped munitions into a crowd of Israeli troops mustering. Um, the Israelis are looking to move uh, into the territory and they're doing it in large numbers. And so they have um, they have been seen in clusters in a way that I think maybe we'll talk about when with Ali later, but just um, shows kind of the lack of uh, on the ground actual war fighting um, experience that the Israelis have. Um, the resistance has really been remarkable. Um, the way that they have um, given us the opportunity to see what's going on through their, you know, learned from Hezbollah, learned um, that the media arm of the Qassam Brigades is a super important part of telling people what's going on and showing these actions and uh, giving the narrative of what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, because the Israelis are very, um, you know, unclear about exactly what is going on, and they've been moving very slowly. Um, and it hasn't been, uh, you know, they're talking about how they're encircling Gaza City. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. What we've seen is significant fighting on three primary axes, but the two main axes are in the northwest. The Israelis have come across the north of the Gaza Strip and are looking to move down the beach. Um, rather than uh, what we had talked about before of moving through Shajaiya in the east and moving through um, these areas, it seems like their war plan has switched. Um, probably uh, it was unlikely their plan. I think both groups' uh, battle plans change as they see uh, what unfolds on the ground. But now we're seeing the Israelis move down the western coast um, moving along the beach, which is for them easier to do with their bulldozers than, um, you know, bombing all of uh, Gaza City and driving through the center of it. Um, but yeah, I think the the strong uh, resistance has kept the Israelis um, from moving to the next stage of their ground operation, which they've promised uh, is to root out Hamas, if that's the case. Um, they're going to have to move into fixed positions, which we haven't seen yet. They seem to still be on the move. Um, but what we've seen is is pretty significant buildup at two of the strong points that the Israelis have set up. They have uh, 90, like, according to satellite images. So we're looking at two things here. We're looking at satellite imagery of Israeli troop movements. Um, we're matching that with Israeli videos and statements uh, of where they are. And then we're matching that with videos and statements from the resistance of where the axes of fighting are. So the, the predominant fighting has been in the northwest uh, of the Gaza Strip. Um, and that's when they're moving down um, the beach, but also in the east, um, in the southeast corner of Gaza City. Um, they've been moving to cut across uh, the Gaza Strip to cut 
it in half that we've talked about on previous shows. Um, and the resistance shows multiple times a day videos of their homemade weaponry um, built in Gaza attacking successfully um, uh, Israeli positions, Israeli positions inside houses when they take up positions inside houses or inside their armor, which is where they have been for the vast majority of the time. We haven't seen, um, the only time we've seen Israelis on foot has been in the wide open fields of the north in the buffer zone that we talked about before. There's no footage yet. We haven't seen any footage of Israelis' uh, boots on the ground in urban areas. And the only time we did see that um, fighting in urban areas was Jabalia last week that we talked about. And Israel dropped uh, eight 2,000-pound bombs onto 20 houses uh, in order to kill, they say, uh, one fighter who led uh, an anti-tank unit that killed two Gavadi Brigade soldiers. So essentially they get hit and then respond by essentially just wasting the entire area, which is something we saw previously, um, you know, in 2002 in Janine. Um, we've seen it, of course, in Lebanon uh, uh, throughout the years in Kana and Binchibail. Uh, when they get hit, they respond with massacres. And that's what we're seeing. And I think that's the analysis right now is is uh, a yeah. scary part of what's going on is that they don't have apparently the courage to go in on the ground. Um, and so they're doing this work through the air and through artillery. And when you're in Jabalia or you're in Beit Hanun or Beit Lahia, these are smaller farming. I mean, Jabalia is a refugee camp. The other two are farming villages. It's not the same as going through street after street of 15-story buildings in a in an urban environment like Gaza City. So what we've seen so far um, is just um, the very beginnings, and they're doing things very carefully um, and are still, uh, they lost 30 soldiers this week. That's what they've announced. Um, we know that they flew 260 medevacs out of the Gaza Strip. But one of the things about their armored vehicles is that they're, especially their new ones, their ATAN infantry fighting vehicles, they're like miniature ICUs. They call them mobile ICUs. They have fridges for blood transfusions. Um, they have all the um, medical care that they need. They have a washroom inside it. So they literally don't ever have to get out uh, except for their medevacs. Uh, get out of their vehicles. And that's what they're doing right now. All of their bluster about how they're going to take uh, all of Gaza City or all of Gaza and kill every single Hamas fighter for generations to come, as Netanyahu said, um, just the most maximalist objective. Um, if that's the objective, then they haven't even begun that. And already you can see the brutality of the way they're fighting this war. Um, you know, they're targeting Shifa Hospital, they're targeting ambulances and telling us that Hamas fighters are putting weapons in ambulances after for a month, they've been telling us about this massive tunnel network that allows their fighters to move everywhere without being touched. And now all of a sudden, they don't have that tunnel network, they have they're smuggling in ambulances. 
Um, this is just to open the ground for the urban warfare where they they believe that Shifa Hospital is a legitimate target, that the Indonesian hospital is a legitimate target. As previous guests have said, 16 uh, out of 35 hospitals in the Gaza Strip are completely out of service because of similar type um, besiegement. They bombed the uh, the solar panels that people had linked up to Shifa Hospital. When people moved south, uh, if they had solar panels on their roof, they were stringing those to the connection for Shifa, running things like incubators um, with a backup supply. Israel went and pinpoint picked out all of the solar panels off the roofs of the building that were feeding Shifa Hospital. Um, they told people to leave Gaza, and we saw the other day, they massacred people walking on foot because people are too scared to leave in their cars because as we saw the other day with the tank shell just blowing the car away, any car moving is a target. So people left Gaza City on their feet, on foot, and Israel massacred them. And so the message is that you can't leave Gaza City. People are too scared to leave Gaza City because of these massacres. Uh, and all they're doing is targeting, again, civilian infrastructure, destroying the water reservoir uh, in Jabalia, uh, you know, just really putting a fine point on all the things that Ahmed said at the beginning when people are talking about uh, what it's like to live in Gaza under this siege. People don't have water. They're starting to get sicknesses from waterborne, uh, like deprivation, starvation. Um, but the ground war that they promised and all the bluster to sort of re-establish the image of the Israeli army after it was um, humiliated in front of the entire world on October 7th, um, really there haven't done any of that fighting. The only fighting they've done is this continual massacring of civilians as if uh, bombing civilians is going to lessen support for the resistance when John, everybody knows it does the opposite of that. John, uh, that's a great overview. I think we have a couple of um, clips we want to show, and I'm going to ask you about them. Should we do that now? Sure. All right. Which one do you want to do first? Um, so, well, the Israelis, the Haaretz article that was in the paper yesterday was basically verbatim the IDF explaining what their mission was. And they say right off the top that the mission in Gaza to do what the government is asking them to do. See, look at the whole article. The IDF said, the IDF said. Um, so the IDF says that the, they can do what the government is asking them to do, namely eradicate every single Hamas member. But they say in there very clearly that it'll take many, many months, if not many years. And then they say also that they're not going to go into the tunnels. They're saying that at this point, it's too dangerous to go in the tunnels. Uh, so we're going to stay outside and quote, you can see that they'll be dealt with, quote, at a later stage. So this whole bluster about going in the tunnels and fighting face-to-face -face in the tunnels, they actually have army-wide writ saying that going in the tunnel is prohibited, which is also, we talked about, what they did in 2014, their vaunted tunnel war of 2014. Soldiers were prohibited from entering the tunnels unless they'd been destroyed at one end. 
um, which as we know from a spider web is impossible to do. So it basically gives the Israelis the out to not touch tunnels, which is where I'm... all the fighters are, tens of thousands of them, according to the fighters, according to the Israelis, according to their intelligence assessments, that's where all the fighters are. And so they're telling us on day five, day six of the ground war that actually we're not going to go into the tunnels, which are the number one tool for the resistance to fight the ground war. Is there tunnels? Is there ability to move around, to come up in places the Israelis didn't expect? We've seen in Qassam videos already many of the things that we talked about earlier on on these shows. Um, we've seen uh, Qassam use RPGs and uh, anti-tank weapons from high up in buildings shooting down on top of them, which we talked about would happen. Um, we've seen videos of the mouse holing in between buildings, um, making holes in between buildings so they can move between buildings without going outside. We've seen that this is just in their videos that they show. So it's only um, a small portion of what they're actually doing. But we've seen all that. We've seen the Israelis not be able to occupy buildings and hold that territory. For them to invade Gaza City, they're going to have to move into the buildings um, and fight in the buildings because the buildings have the tunnels in them. And so if they're not going to fight inside tunnels, then they at least have to be inside the buildings. But they're saying they're not going to do that. And so really, I think we're seeing the sort of tempering of the actual fighting component of the Israelis. But what worries me and worries people in Gaza is it looks like there are no red lines. And so if they're not going to fight face to face, like they've said they're going to do to restore the image of their southern command, then they're just going to continue to bomb. And we know that people didn't leave Gaza City. There's hundreds of thousands of people still in Gaza City, friends of mine, friends of ours that are still in Gaza City and who are people don't want to leave. Their family members don't want to leave because they saw the footage filmed by a kid on a bicycle the other day riding his bike through the carnage of people, you know, Palestinian refugees becoming refugees again and walking from their community in Gaza City and being massacred by a plane. That's what Israel's doing. And if that's the way they're going to fight this war, uh, tens well, of it, thousands of people are going to die. 10,000 have already died. It strikes me, John, if we look at this. So from, from what I've seen, and we've looked at all the Qassam videos that come out, when I think we may show a clip, but we're unfortunately due to the censorship on this channel, uh, we can't show them because our this 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 program will then be deleted by YouTube as happened uh, to the program before last. So we have to be careful about that. But we've watched the videos and we've talked about them offline, and what they show is in many cases, Israeli armor, that's to say tanks and armored personnel carriers, state-of-the-art, I, I assume, mm -hmm. uh, being destroyed, sometimes at very close range, by Qassam fighters, 
using these uh, Yassin anti-tank missiles or Cornet anti-tank missiles, or even by placing explosives by hand on top of the tanks. Or the, and, and we even saw that with an armored bulldozer. People yeah. have seen the videos. What we don't see in any of those videos is Israeli infantry, which, as I understand, in urban warfare, you have to have infantry on the ground, clearing streets, clearing buildings, guarding the armor. The armor is actually there to support infantry in the sense that the infantry directs the tanks, fire over there, fire over here. In other words, the armor in an urban setting is not the main course. It's like the side dish. The infantry is the main course. I'm sorry to use this, this uh, analogy. And also, again, as I understand from my reading, but you, you can tell me if I'm wrong, these tanks do have sophisticated detection systems, radars and all sorts of sensors and things. But in... Uh, in an urban setting, that's just going to produce a lot of noise. These tanks are, are meant to be out in open fields fighting against other tanks or what have you. So in other words, if you imagine you're driving your car, but you black out all the windows of your car except for, let's say, a little square in the windscreen this big, yeah. that's what it's like to be in a tank in the middle of Gaza City. Yeah, and... and and, and so, Palestinians know that because they've watched children in the West Bank for the last, you know, for the whole intifada. Um, the children in the West Bank showed us that because the, the tanks can't see. They don't have vision around them. So once you get close to a tank, um, the tank is actually can't see you. And so kids like 10 year old kids will climb up on a tank and try and pull or an APC and try to pull the gun off. Um, because the troops have lack situational awareness and 360 degree awareness to such a degree that children can climb on the tank. Right. And as you said, now the resistance is able to take that message. And instead of climbing on the tank, they're putting uh, explosive devices by hand in the exact spot on the tank where they're the weakest. So they're able to deliver that by right. hand. So, so what I want to say, so what we what we see now is that so up till now, this could change, but up to this point, the Israelis who get beyond the perimeter, the empty fields of Gaza, are not willing to get out of their tanks or their armored personnel carriers. They're not willing to get to go into buildings or when they have gone we've seen at least one builder uh in one video they've been blasted by one of these thermobaric grenades that the resistance has and then they bombed jabalia that's when they were right. in the building right so the, so that so that they're, they're not willing to get out of the the armor they're not willing to go down in the tunnels so in other words they're not willing to do any of what it takes so far to do the things they said they would do now, we have this one video that uh, uh, was put out by Netanyahu's office the other day. Can we take a look at that, Tamara? We won't get banned for this one because Netanyahu put yeah, it out. Yeah, exactly. This was put out by Ofir Gendelman, who is, <laughs> well, just, just 
Okay, just pause it for a second, Tamara, or, or let that, just let it advance so we see the whole of the Arabic uh, sentence there. And this was, pause, yeah, all right, just pause it for a second. So it says, uh, the, the uh, dogs chase the dogs of Hamas until victory. And mm. this video supposedly, again, it was posted by Ofir Gendelman, the official Arabic language spokesperson for Benjamin Netanyahu. And he claimed that this shows an Israeli soldier chasing a Hamas fighter through a tunnel. Run the video. Let's take a look. Yeah, I don't even know if that soundtrack is is genuine, but it turns oh, out you got that me. yeah, it turns out with <laughs> that within an hour or so, an Israeli journalist called Yoav Zitun, who is the military correspondent for Ynet, which is one of the major Israeli news sites. Yeah, it's not a like left leaning news. No, no, this at is all. like no. it's it's related to Yediat Aharonot, which is the main one of the top newspapers in Israel. It's their website. Um, came out and said this is a training video uh, from basically from uh, Operation uh, Protective Edge, so from 2014 or earlier. This is a training video, uh, and interestingly, so it was put out by Netanyahu's office, but not by the Israeli army. It was not on any of the Israeli army official accounts. It's totally fake. But what it shows you is that they know that in order to do what they say they're going to do, they would have to go down in the tunnels. And yet the army is saying, we're not going to go down in the tunnels. So it, it just seems that, you know, I guess fake it till you make it in a way. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I've said it repeatedly. The Israeli record of fighting face-to-face -face in urban confrontations is very thin. It's possible that they do do that. That's what they're promising to do. Um, but the record of it is very thin. That's why they have to show a fake video. And that they show a video like that, and the, the dog handler actually is wearing uh, the, the guard. So anyone that's worked with dogs immediately sees that that's fake. Um, and it's the same with the tanks, right? When you talked about the infantry being outside of tanks, like, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but, you know, something like 1.3 million Americans served in Iraq. They served outside of a tank. They know what it's like to cover the back of a tank. Um, and so there's thousands of people that are watching these videos of the Israelis saying, like, these are very obvious mistakes, um, you know, packing troops together, like they dropped that drone, dropped munition right in the center of what looked like about 30 troops just standing around. Um, they're not covering their back. I think it's probably best to not show the video if it means that we're going to take get taken off the air for it. But essentially, um, Kassam Brigades released a video that had 10 separate incidents of uh, RPGs and anti-tank weapons being fired from point blank range or put an explosive physically by hand onto 10 armored vehicles that
that exploded. Um, and so we're their armor is the strongest armor in the world. They admit that because their tanks fight in their own neighborhoods. They don't have to worry about considerations that the Americans worry about their tanks because American tanks have to go onto planes to be flown over to their imperialist wars. Um, Israel just drives down the road to get to theirs. So their tanks can be twice the, the weight of American armor. Um, but eventually, um, these, uh, these tanks are going to have to hold neighborhoods in order to find tunnels or even just to fight Hamas, let alone defeat the, every single last one of them. They'll have to hold neighborhoods. And in order to hold a neighborhood, you have to be out dismounted, out of your armor, looking behind you, looking above you, um, and taking risks. And the idea is that you take um, calculated risks by looking around you, which ultimately makes everybody in the armored core safer. But the Israelis aren't right now willing to do that. They're not. They're very casual, casualty averse, um, and they've basically eliminated the two parts that are the most important for the ground war, which is to get out on foot and to go down into the tunnels. And if you're not going to do either one of those, then all you're doing is massacring civilians, starving them, um, you know, creating uh, waterborne diseases on a civilian population when you don't have the actual courage to fight the battle that you're saying you're going to fight. And if you're not going to fight that battle, then stop the war, stop attacking civilians and and figure out some other way to get your prisoners out than promising a war that's going to last for more than a year when one month into it you've killed 10,000 people is that the pace of how we're going to go is there really no red line that even if they're not fighting this war uh, the americans won't stop them from doing this because that's the pace if you're talking 10,000 people killed every month um for the next year um, and that it, may and that may well that may well uh, accelerate because now we we you know the first month people still had relative uh, amount of resources whether it was food or just simply their own health but after a month of this you know people are worn down their health is worn down they're living in in the horrifying conditions that Ahmed Samak described of you know toilets that can't be flushed and uh, crowded right UN very crowded where you have six toilets serving thousands of people with no water horrifying conditions i mean death camp conditions and i say that without any exaggeration or hyperbole but um if they are not going to fight go down into the tunnels and do the things they said that they would do and even if they want to they may not be capable of it no, it then seem like we, it. we we have to 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 hope and we have to make sure let me put it that way that they are not able to just indefinitely massacre people from the air because that has got to be something that the world just cannot tolerate any longer um even if joe biden and secretary blinken want to tolerate it for longer i i i can't imagine that the world can let this go on indefinitely and we I can't think- allow it just one more thing on that dog video i think one of the interesting things about it was how it was so clearly seemed to be aimed at the palestinian public 
you know, with the caption in Arabic and being released by the uh, Arab language spokesperson, that it's a kind of, um, uh, you know, psychological warfare to say, you know, because the, the videos that we've been talking about by the Qassam brigades that we, uh, we apparently we can't show, although, I mean, we're sort of surmising because YouTube's uh, censorship is completely opaque, um, but we're, we're sort of surmising that that was the reason it was banned. But these videos have just been really popular online, you know, passed around by Palestinians and other Arabs so much. And so this fake dog video just seems to be um, an acknowledgement of how successful um, the Qassam brigades and the other resistance factions uh, media strategy has been. And it's a kind of response to that, a failed response. I mean, it's so embarrassing. I can't imagine fighting in that army. That must be so embarrassing to spend years and years training in a special forces unit. And then some some spokesperson puts out a video that makes you look like clowns. I don't understand where Israel gets that. And I also don't understand what it must be like to be an Israeli prisoner underground and reading Haaretz today uh, and finding out that they're actually not going down into the tunnels, that you're staying down there indefinitely and they're going to figure it out later, as if we somehow have forgotten about the part that there's hundreds of Israelis um, that their government is supposed to be bringing home, that they're saying, actually, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we'll worry about that later. I mean, the text of that article from the IDF, this is just like, well, we'll deal with that later. Uh, with, with these people that are living every day underground. Um, and then what's going on above the ground is just so criminal that it's putting the state of Israel's legitimacy in question all over the world um, for something that they can't, that they can't, that they're not willing to um, fight to achieve. Why not just have a prisoner exchange now then? If you're not going to go down into the tunnels, stop killing tens of thousands of people have a prisoner exchange that's on the table from day one um, and worry about rebuilding your army in a different way besides uh, massacring civilians to prove that you're you're strong. At this point, um, it's the most brutal form of warfare. It's really difficult to watch and it's it's hard to analyze as a military analyst, uh, you know, to analyze this thing that is so massively a human catastrophe. Indeed. Um, John, is there anything that you are um, focusing on over the next uh, few days that, that you think would be important um, to, to point out? I mean, the Rafa border has got to be opened. I think that that, that, that has got to happen. Um, like these, somebody's got to run the blockade with an aid ship. Where's the aid ship? There's, there's, Ambulance, uh, uh, floating hospitals, the French have, the Turks have. Um, there's floating electrical, uh, like electrical stations that are on boats that could be brought in. The humanitarian situ situation needs to be dealt with now, right away. Yeah. I, I, it's, yeah. It's devastating what's happening. And it's got a solution, yeah. open Rafa. Open Karam Shalom, which is a massive shipping terminal connected to a port. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, open the border. Yeah. Yeah. It just points out how, how, um, 
you know, man-made the entire disaster in Gaza is from from day one, from every step of the way. This is this is Israel being its most sadistic, and the U.S. and Canada and the EU just helping it. It's it's um it's, it's unspeakable. It is. It just it's hard to know what to say about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, um, we are uh, about to wrap up uh, today's live stream. Um, we had just a, a really incredible, warm, angry uh, responses from from our viewers and listeners. Um, Asa, do you want to go through some of them? Yeah, we had uh, an outpouring of support for Ahmed, of course, earlier in the show. Um, our viewers sending a lot of support, of course, for Ahmed, as always. People are always very moved to uh, hear our accounts from our friends and contributors in Gaza and outside of Gaza, like Ahmed. Um, and uh, we had as well friend of the show, R. Waters, writing in to say thank you, Ahmed. Uh, we can't imagine what we're going through. Thank you again, Roger. Um, and also several people talking about the the response that Ahmed himself yeah, yeah. Uh, described in Dublin and uh, the issue of PTSD. Um, and we had, you know, we had a lot of support as well for uh, for all our other guests as well. People were enjoying what Louis was saying, and uh, and a lots lots of support in general for the electronic intifada and for these live streams and people seem to find them useful and supportive so thank you everyone for watching thank you everyone for listening thank you and um if we could just show the electronic intifada's uh, main page right now just to remind people to go to our website uh, sign up for email updates so you get notified when there is a live stream. Um, you can also go to our YouTube page and and subscribe and, and you'll get automatically notified as well from there. Um, and I especially recommend our updates feature uh, that John and our senior editor Maureen Murphy um, have been curating and editing. If you go to the top, uh, you can see where it says updates in big red and white letters and it gives you a succinct uh, overview of each day's uh, events and atrocities. War it's, it's a war crimes log um, and uh, we are populating it all day, every day. Um, and, 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 we, and we also yeah. put on there too, uh, there'll be a, a, a brief uh, excerpt or summary and link to all the articles we publish as well. Of course, you can see those on the front page of the Electronic Intifada, but this is also a neat way to see everything. And we are publishing uh, a huge amount from writers in Gaza right now. Uh, there are yeah. people in Gaza who are writing, who are describing what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what's happening around them, and we are publishing it. And we're also publishing the voices of Palestinians whose families are in Gaza, but they're outside. And so very much like Ahmed al-Samak, who we heard from, what they're experiencing and the ways they're coping and what they're, they're hearing from their parents, uh, from their families. And that is just for me, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes hear 
Palestinians from outside Gaza saying, I wish I were there. I mean, imagine imagine yeah. wishing you were in such a hellish situation, but that's how hard it is to be separated from your family at a time like this, that you just want to be with them at uh, any cost. And I'll just say again, thank you. You know, I know we've gotten a lot of new viewers and a new, new readers through these live streams. Please visit the website. Please share the articles. Send them to friends. Send them to family. Share them on social media. This is what it's for. It's we do not. We put this out for the whole world for free. We don't. You know, there's no subscription. Nothing. It's always free. It's always going to be free because we want the information to be out there. We're very grateful and thankful to our readers who make this possible by giving a donation. So if you want to do that, feel free to do so. It really helps. It's certainly no obligation, but that is how we do this work, and that's how we support uh, everything we're doing. So again, thank you, everyone. And and thank you, too, for all the notes and emails. One day I'm going to get through my uh, email <laughs> inbox, but that we're receiving them, and we appreciate them. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank thanks, Ali. Yeah. And uh, yeah. a special, special thanks, as always, to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, um, an extraordinary journalist in her own right, as well as being the, you know, producer of this live stream and, and all the others. And so um, huge, huge warm thanks and, and gratitude to Tamara for all of the work. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, I am Nora Barrows-Friedman with John Elmer, Asa Wynn-Stanley, and Ali Abunima, and Tamara Nassar. Thank you all, and uh, stay tuned for next time.